Welcome to Question Period. Hope you're doing well. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on our program, Will China Retaliate? We have an independent judicial system uh, that uh, has rendered a judgment uh, without any political interference, obviously. Huawei CEO Meng Wanzhou loses a key court decision. Will China now retaliate against Canada? What about the fate of the two Canadians who've been imprisoned for more than 500 days? The Foreign Affairs Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne will join us, and then the former CSIS director Dick Fadden and Canada's former ambassador to China Guy Saint-Jacques are here to weigh in. And then, long-term care home horror. On reading the deeply disturbing report, I had obviously a range of emotions of uh, anger, of sadness, of, of frustration, um, of grief. The military blows the whistle on stunning neglect and abuse inside long-term care homes in Quebec and Ontario. How can the provinces fix a system that's been broken for decades? And why has it taken so long to talk about this? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh tells us why he wants the RCMP to investigate and why he cut a deal with the Liberals to stop regular parliamentary sittings until September. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. A pathetic clown, a scapegoat. Those are just some of the reactions from China's state-run media to the B.C. court decision to proceed with the extradition of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. She's been held in Canada, and to be clear, at her $10 million mansion, we should say, since December 2018. China has already retaliated, unlawfully arresting two Canadians, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, and they've been held in prison for over 500 days. But will there be more retaliation? As China has already warned, can Canada hit back? What about accepting Huawei as part of Canada's 5G uh, net telecom network? To talk about that and the new news that President Donald Trump has just terminated the U.S. relationship with the WHO in the middle of the pandemic is the Foreign Affairs Minister of Canada, Francois-Philippe Champagne. Minister, always good to have you on the program and I hope you and the family are well. China has warned that it will retaliate against Canada in the wake of the court decision on Meng Wanzhou. Are you expecting that? Well, I would certainly urge restraint. I mean, uh, one of the benefits of living in Canada is that you have an independent judiciary, uh, that the decision in the main case is an independent decision by a judge in B.C. And in this case, like in every case, when a judge makes a decision in our country, you don't need to justify, you don't need to explain, you don't need to excuse yourself, because a decision of the court is a decision of the court, full stop. So um, we have been transparent from day one. We have said to the Chinese counterpart, this is a step in the judicial process, which will be ongoing. And um, obviously, this is my, my words to my counterpart, which I've reached out, is to say uh, we should exercise restraint. This is not a time to escalate anything. This is a time we have our differences. We know them. That's why I've called for uh, uh, having a smart and principled engagement with China. We will right. continue, obviously, to advocate for Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor because, you know, Evan, this has been my priority and the priority of this government since day one. Sir, I appreciate that. It just hasn't worked. They're still lounging in prison. They don't have, uh, they're languishing there. They don't, the lights are on 24 hours a day. They don't have reading glasses. They don't have access to, uh, to legal support. Uh, now there's real concern for their safety that China will expedite the case against them. They have about a 99.9% conviction rate there. Are you concerned for their safety? Will this jeopardize their safety? Well, we will take every measure that we can, uh, Evan. You know from day one, uh, the last time I spoke to my counterpart in China, I asked that the two Michaels uh, would have 
a virtual consular access, that we have virtual consular access so that we can talk to them under the Vienna Convention. We have rallied the international community uh, behind their case. We have said that arbitrary detention should not and is not a tool of diplomacy, and we will continue. There's quite a difference between the main case of someone who is arrested under an international treaty of extradition, which is afforded due process in a country which believes in the rule of law, uh, compared to two uh, Canadians who have been arbitrarily detained. You said it for more than 500 days. That's 500 days too much. So we will continue to advocate to put the pressure where it needs to be. I, I get, that's, that's the way that you're going to get them released. Well, um, but it's not working. I guess what you could do, uh, it, will you warn other Canadians traveling there? If China is prepared and they're admitting it to arbitrarily detain or imprison Canadians, pluck them off the street and essentially kidnap them, are you going to warn other Canadians now that there's a risk of escalation? Be careful in China. You could be imprisoned. Well, certainly, I, I think people take notice of what's going on. People have seen that. They have seen what's going on now. And, and we will certainly... Uh, advise Canadians as we should. Uh, but what I'm saying in this case now, we will continue to advocate for them. And I would say, you know, having a, a responsible and principled engagement with China is not weak. That's the smart way to get them out. We've seen that movie before. And therefore, we are making sure that we do everything that we can. We explore all well, solutions. Okay, but there, let, let me just ask we'll you, sir, to be fair, that. you could take Magnitsky sanctions against Chinese leadership. Are you considering that? But I'd say uh, we need to be smart in what we're doing when it comes to that, Evan. We need to take measures that will lead to their release. That's exactly what we're doing. We're exploring. We have a strategy. We've been following it. We'll continue to speak up, to stand up for them. We've rallied the international community behind that. People understand today, and I think it's damaging to China. I've said it to my Chinese counterpart. I've talked to him probably more than any foreign minister in four months. I talk to him every other month. We've been engaging with each but, other. They know but, where we stand. We know what's their concern. They know what's our concern. But one thing is clear is that uh, you cannot compare someone who's been arrested in Canada, a country which believes in the rule of law and the separation of but, power. But I, I understand that. I, look, look, people who are arbitrarily detained in China. I appreciate that, sir. But if it was working, I would say, great. But it not the definition of insanity to do the same thing over and over again. Well, and and look, look what China seems emboldened. Look what they're doing in Hong Kong. I know Canada's issued a statement, but those are words, and clearly China doesn't respond to words. Look what's happening to the, the reports about the, the, the re-education camps, quote-unquote. Uh, there have been options. Canada could abandon the Asia Infrastructure Bank. You could recognize Taiwan as a country, given what's happened uh, in Hong Kong. Are any of those on the table, sir? Well, I would say if, if you want to speak about Hong Kong, I mean, we were at the center. That that's the second declaration, but we did that with allies. Uh, the latest uh, where we said that we are very concerned, because if you step back, we know that uh, it's the one country to system that has made Hong Kong what it is today, which is a trading hub and, and a financial hub in Asia. And we've said very clearly that we're concerned that the imposition by Beijing of a national security law will erode that foundation. And we will be looking at the implication and the ramification that this may have on the special arrangements but, we have with Canada and Hong Kong. But and outside of words, what can you do? I'm, I'm just like, I just, you know, on Friday, the, the U.S. president, and I'm not suggesting he's the, the, the benchmark of foreign policy, but look, he decided to end their special trading status to punish China for what he believes is a deep curtailment of the freedom. And then he also, and I'd love your comment on this, terminated the U.S. relationship with the WHO. They, they provided over $400 million there. What's your reaction to that? 
Well, to the first part, I would say the, the last statement that was issued was between the United States, Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom. And Canada was front and center uh, when it came to framing, obviously, our response. Uh, when you're looking at the World Health Organization, uh, we said from the get-go, I spoke to my Australian counterpart at the time and said, certainly Canada wants an independent investigation. We want to ask tough questions, but as the Prime Minister said, you need to do that at the right time. That's the, that's the smart thing to do. Uh, you don't want to undermine, at this point of time, uh, the institution, the World Health Organization, which is providing advice and, and data to, to countries like in the Pacific, in, in the Caribbean, in Africa. We need them now. So what we said, let's ask the tough questions about the leadership, the alert system, uh, the financing. But let's do that, you know, at the appropriate time after but, the... But, but the, the truth is, but what about action? I mean, again, like, have you coordinated with the U.S.? to, for example, end special treatment of Hong Kong, they're doing it. Could you cut finances to the Asian Infrastructure Bank and fund it through the, through the World Bank? I mean, what con when can Canada say to China, we're going to take concrete actions? Otherwise, their words in China is kidnapping Canadians, as it were, and look what they're doing in Hong Kong. You just wonder, what is keeping China in check? Well, I think what we're doing is, is, is not weak. It's pretty smart. Uh, because you want to be with the international community when it comes to the response. What I said to you is that we were at the forefront when we did the two statements. What I'm saying to you is that with the international partners, and we're going to have a call uh, among a number of international partners on Monday, uh, which is scheduled, the United States, the UK, mm -hmm. we're going to be talking, like I said, about the ramification and the implications uh, of the decision by Beijing on, on the special arrangements that Canada has with Hong Kong. But you know what? Uh, foreign policy in Canada is decided by Canadian for Canadian. So this sure. is going to be uh, us looking at what makes sense from a Canadian perspective. We stood up. We have spoken uh, in respect of the freedom and the liberty of the people of Hong Kong. We have done right. that for Michaels and Mr. Schellenberg and all the other Canadians which are facing death penalty in China. And we will continue to do that. I, I got to lead it there. A very fluid situation. Uh, Mr. Champagne, always good to have you on the program, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. All right, coming up, do we need a national inquiry into long-term care? How fast can the federal government get the provinces to agree to a 10-day paid sick leave? Did the NDP make a deal with the Liberals to essentially shut down regular sittings of Parliament until September? All those questions will put to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. He joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. I inherited this system. The buck stops with me. I take full ownership, but my job is to fix a, a, a broken system that's been broken for decades. Well, the Canadian forces painted a very grim picture inside long-term care homes in Ontario and in Quebec. Sick patients not separated from healthy residents, staff not properly using PPE, residents left for hours in soiled diapers, cockroach infestations. The list goes on and on. The army was called in to help as caregivers. They emerged as whistleblowers. They couldn't even cope with the coronavirus pandemic as they watched it ravage long-term care homes. Experts say the pandemic only added stress to an already broken system that everybody knew about it. How can provinces improve long-term care? Should the RCMP be called in? And in exchange for a promise on sick leave, why did the NDP agree to shut down regular parliamentary sittings until September? Let's find out. We're joined now by the NDP leader, 
Jagmeet Singh, Mr. Singh, hope you and the family are well. Uh, welcome back to the program. Ontario Premier Doug Ford said the province needs more money to address the major problems in long-term care homes. He says he was stunned when he saw what many people said have been around for years. Do you think the federal government has a role to play? And in, in which case, what would that be? Absolutely. There's no question about it. We spoke to, we've heard from the previous health minister, Dr. Philpott, who said absolutely the federal government has a role to play. And I've been calling on the prime minister to show some leadership that it's not enough to say that he's willing to sit back and wait for provinces to act, but the federal government can play a role. And a couple of the key ways that we can play a role, first off, the federal government can increase funding to long-term care. The health transfers over the decades have been going downwards, have reduced to the point that what used to be 50-50 is now 80-20. We can increase healthcare transfers and we can ensure that long-term care is rolled under the same principles as the Canada Health Act to ensure that we're getting quality care for seniors. All right, a lot of province will say, hang on there. We know it's a shared responsibility healthcare, but it is provincial jurisdiction. Is this really a problem that the provinces have to deal with and they just have to ask for, I don't know, what is it, just more money uh, from the uh, federal government? Is that the answer? Well, we saw the military go into long-term care homes. The, the situation, the conditions for seniors was appalling. It's not enough for the federal government to throw up its hands and make excuses. It's necessary for the federal government to play a role, to call for things, to say, well, we believe that there should be no profit in long-term care. The military pointed out what you described, needles were reused. Needles were reused from patient to patient. I mean, these are appalling practices. And it was clearly cited by the military report that staff was afraid to use essential vital equipment because they were afraid of the cost. Clearly, it's become evident that cost and profit should have no place in the care of vulnerable seniors. So we need the federal government to play a role, to call out the problems with profit, to say that they're willing to establish some national standards, care guarantees, and working with provinces, let's establish those and then increase funding. All right, let's talk about another aspect. Uh, you pressed Justin Trudeau to talk to the provinces about giving all workers 10 days sick leave. He agreed to that, but it is absolutely not federal jurisdiction. Again, this is provincial jurisdiction. Uh, a lot of businesses are saying, we don't even got to be careful here. We don't want a one-size-fits-all. How do you know, when could this happen if the provinces don't agree to this? It's just, is this a pie-in-the-sky promise? Uh, not at all. It's something we can do right away. We've seen that the federal government was able to because we push them, deliver something like the CERB, which has been effective in getting help to people. We want it to be broader and get those who are falling through the cracks, but it's a system that works. What we can do is use the CERB immediately to allow for workers who are going back to work to be able to take paid sick leave. It would be just unimaginable if in a pandemic, when people are getting back to work, that a worker who gets sick has to think twice, do I go into work risking maybe infecting my colleagues with COVID-19? or I stay at home, then not know how I'm going to pay the bills. So you're the saying the, the federal government should pay for the entire thing? The businesses don't have to pay for the sick leave? The provinces, you're just saying the, the federal government comes in and they're the ones responsible for this? Well, I was saying there's a two-phase approach. Immediately, right away, yes, we need to use the CERB or employment insurance or some federal program to immediately deliver paid sick leave in a pandemic so that no worker has to choose between going to work or staying home and not knowing if they pay the bills. Yes, we need to do something immediate. And that's what I spoke to the prime minister about and we had a good chat about how that could be done immediately. The second goal and what I wanna see in addition to the immediate goal is a long-term paid sick leave for all as a permanent 
policy in Canada, and that's going to require working mm. provinces and employers to get there, and we absolutely need to get there. All right. Well, in exchange for that promise to do that, you've agreed to support the Liberals on their plan on Parliament to have these two virtual COVID committee sittings and two physical ones. The Conservatives are saying that's not enough. We're in the midst of a pandemic. They're spending hundreds of billions of dollars. We have not had a regular parliamentary sitting, which means opposition day motions, private members bill motions, all sorts of mechanisms to hold this government to account till September. And yet you've agreed. Why did you agree to that? Is that an abdication of our democratic need for oversight in the midst of an emergency? Uh, not at all. In fact, what we advocated gives us more transparency. We pushed for four days in the House. The, the government, the Conservatives talked about uh, sitting in the House without allowing MPs that are from further away, that don't have access to Ottawa, they would be completely excluded. Our plan was one where we had a hybrid system for four days a week, hybrid, physical and virtual, so that people across this country will have their voices represented. In addition, the Conservatives wanted us to take the summer off and have no accountability over the summer. And we said, no, that's not fair. During, a, during COVID-19, during this pandemic, during this crisis, we need to hold the government to account. And so our proposal included sitting days in the summer as well. But so sir, but sir, days. I just want people, let's not get, these aren't sitting with the COVID committee. I just want people, no private members, well, no emergency debates. On June 17th, they're gonna have a whole of government committee. They've given you four hours to look at what will be the, the billions of dollars. Four hours, they've curtailed debate. You've supported that. You've also tweeted out things like, we need to get work on the missing Aboriginal uh, women and girls issue. Very important issue, but how do you have the audacity to call the government to do those things when they can't do it because of your support for the lack of a regular sitting of parliament? Completely false. Evan, with all due respect, but your frame is completely false. Uh, right now, we have more days, we have more time in question period. I'm actually entitled to five minutes, and, a, and all MPs get five minutes to ask questions. Before, I would get about 30 seconds for two questions. Now I have five minutes to hold the government to account. So we're able to push the government. When Sir, it comes I, I just to want to make, I, are you, are you arguing that the COVID point, committee you, is you more a, robust democratically than I've regular I've parliament? I've got to clarify the falsehoods, though. I mean, uh, we actually have more opportunity to hold the government to account. The government can absolutely move on things like murdered and missing Indigenous women and girl, girls because they have uh, we have the opportunity to push them to do so. But what legislative conservatives sir, sir, just had no summer hold sittings. Hold on. They had here, no here. summer sittings in their in what they envisioned. That would leave a blank check for the government. We push back. We have summer sittings. We have significant uh, opportunities to ask the government questions, and we can absolutely hold them to account. And the proof is in the pudding. Throughout this COVID-19 committee, we have pushed the government to improve things like the response to CERB. We have pushed uh, to improve you, the sir, access sir, to students. You, We've actually pushed to make them see this. Just a second. You're actually making an argument that a COVID committee with two virtual sittings and four sittings in the summer is, and, and with curtailed debate on spending is more democratic than regular parliament. You think this is more democratic than a regular sitting of parliament that you could get? Are you serious? I'm laying out that we have evidentiary basis have more accountability, absolutely, with what we're laying out. Normally, the summers, there are no sittings. We have increased the opportunity to hold the government to account. That's just a fact, Evan. That's just a fact that we have more opportunity to hold the government to account because we pushed for something the conservatives didn't want. They didn't want to come back in the summer. We pushed to come back in the summer. Yes, having more days of sitting allows for more accountability right. on a question. So, so no but question that, about okay, that. okay, That's I'm just simply saying, a I don't want to get equation. into the weeds, but you, you've given up opposition day motions. You've given simple, up Evan. private members bill. You've got, I, I, I'm, I'm stunned. Okay, so There's you think- absolutely, well, we have more opportunity to ask questions. Okay, so, so, so you, I, I, I guess by that logic- I only get two questions, 30 seconds each. Now I have five minutes to make my case about pushing the government on things. Five minutes versus 30 seconds.
Yeah, uh, but, that's but a big sure, difference. But that's sure, more I mean, you have, to push it's the true government. because you're the fourth In addition, party. we've got summer sittings. That's more sitting. Four. I'm just yeah. giving you the facts. This is I more know. time to hold the government to account. Yeah. It gives us more opportunity to ask questions, more opportunity to hold right. the government to account. Absolutely, it does. Uh, Mr. Singh, i got to leave it there. It's a, it's a fascinating debate, and it's an important one. Uh, Mr. Singh, always good to have you on the program. Always a pleasure. Coming up, a big ruling in the extradition case of Huawei CEO Meng Wanzhou. What will it mean for the two Michaels imprisoned in China? Former CSIS director Dick Fadden and former Canadian ambassador to China Guy Saint-Jacques joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. We will continue to work to ensure that Canadians have the equipment that we need to get through this situation, while at the same time uh, expressing our concern for the two Canadians uh, arbitrarily detained in China uh, and continue to highlight our concerns around Hong Kong. Canada's relations with China hit another low after the B.C. Supreme Court ruled that the Huawei CEO, Meng Wanzhou's extradition, can proceed here. She lost that round. The Chinese embassy in Ottawa immediately interpreted this independent judicial decision as a political one. They allege that Canada is abusing the law and violating Ms. Meng's rights. Chinese state media dismissed Canada as a puppet of the U.S. as a clown. Will China retaliate with more economic actions? And what will it mean for the two Canadians, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, who have been, in the Canadian government's view, unlawfully imprisoned in China for over 500 days. And all this is happening as China cracks down on Hong Kong and moves to eliminate that democratic movement. So what can or what could Canada do? Let's find out. Joining me now is the former CSIS director, former national security advisor to both Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau, uh, Dick Fadden, great to have you back, sir, and our former Canadian ambassador to China, Guy Saint-Jacques, also great to see you. Uh, Guy, let me start with you, Guy Saint-Jacques. Um, do you expect China now to retaliate against Canada in the wake of that decision? Well, I think they will retaliate, and I base this on the, their past uh, behavior. Uh, as you know, uh, when there were other hearings in the past and other decisions, uh, subsequently, and it was usually just a matter of days, uh, they would take uh, their own measures. And I expect that they will want to uh, decide quickly whether to finally uh, launch the trial of Michael Spavor and uh, Michael Kovrig because this has been delayed. I think they were waiting for the, uh, the decision. Also, I expect that they will want to continue to uh, punish us on the, on the trade side. And this would be in addition to what they have already done in the past. Uh, just for memory, you know, last year our exports to China went down 4.5 billion dollars and for the first three months of the year it's uh, down 16 percent yeah so it's real dick fadden what about you what do you expect i mean if the prevailing wisdom is they will retaliate it's not a matter of if but when what do you expect china to do well first of all let me say that i think they will uh retaliate i think Guy's entirely right they're going to retaliate only not only to send us a message but also to send a message to other countries that those who do not tow the Chinese line will suffer consequences. So yes, I think there will be further economic consequences, but I think they will probably augment their efforts at trying to undermine us both domestically and internationally through a variety of means. You know, I think it re if they have really become annoyed at us, they might take advantage of their influence with a variety of countries and try and stymie our attempt at, at obtaining a United Nations Security Council seat. But my sense is they're going to be, they are very annoyed uh, and I don't think it's going to take very long for them to come after us again. Uh, Dick, let me just stay with you. You said a variety of means, and you talked a bit about the UN seat. But what 
what other means? I remember when you were the head of CSIS, you had warned about Chinese interference in cyber issues. There's concerns about economic uh, retaliation. There's concern about, frankly, the fate of the two Michaels that Guy Saint-Jacques just talked about. What means are you specifically referring to? Well, the easiest one to picture is that other Canadians who are in China are, I think, at some risk uh, that they may join uh, the two Michaels in Chinese detention. Uh, there's a fair bit that they can do just by spreading false information about us. And doing this in large chunks of the world where people don't have full access to all sorts of information, they can really do a great deal of harm to Canada's reputation. But in the short term, I think they will try and hit us on the economic front. And if they think their way through uh, where to hit, uh, you know, it's not very hard to imagine that they would find uh, the main, main players in the government hurt more than others if they attack exports, for example, in some parts of Western Canada or Quebec. Guy Saint-Jacques, let's talk about what Canada can do. This is not, by the way, this is not just happening here with the Meng Wanzhou, but Canada's made a statement about what's going on in Hong Kong, the crackdown and essentially the end of the 1997 promise of one country, two systems that uh, was accepted after the Brits handed over Hong Kong in 97. What options are on the table for Canada, Guy Saint-Jacques? Well, you're right, uh, Evan. We are in a very difficult spot. Uh, by the way, I was very pleased to see the statement with uh, regard to Hong Kong because we have a lot at stake in Hong Kong. We have many companies that are there. Uh, we also have 300,000 Canadians uh, living in Hong Kong. And we have in Canada 500,000 Canadians of Hong Kong origin. So, that, you know, it's something that is very important and any opportunity that we can use to impress on the Chinese that they have... Uh, a lot at stake here uh, in terms of their reputation, in terms of the, the use of Hong Kong that they have made uh, for their economic success. But apart from that, uh, you know, we have lost any, the last leverage that we had on China was the prospect of a free trade agreement. And of course, this went by the wayside uh, once we signed the, the new uh, Canada-US-Mexico uh, trade agreement. And for that reason, I think it's important for Canada first to impress on the Americans that they have to do more to help us. Uh, after all, we are in this predicament because of their extradition request. The other thing that we have to do, uh, because the reputation of uh, China has taken a hit, starting with the arrest of Rick and Spaver, and more recently with uh, the way that they have mishandled the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And so we have to uh, continue to seek support from like-minded so that they can speak with the Chinese, but also we have to agree on joint measures that if they, the Chinese were to try to punish us uh, severely, there would be voices uh, coming out to uh, 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 deplore uh, such uh, tactics. And I think that we have also to try to, to work uh, common reactions, and, and by this I mean we have to reinforce the multilateral system so that China understands that the rules apply to them as well. And if they want to be a member of uh, a respected member of the international community, they have to play by the rules. Right. Why don't we have Magnitsky sanctions against some of the Chinese leadership, Dick? At least that would send a sign that, that Canada is not supine in the face of what's going on. I absolutely think we should do that. But let's, again, I, I don't want to be unduly negative. If we honestly think that President Xi is going to be affected by a dozen or so of his colleagues being listed by Canada under that act, I don't think we're being realistic. But we should do it because it sends a message, and we should encourage our allies to do the same sort of thing.
Guys, I got to leave it here. This is a long and complicated file and maybe a dangerous one for the two Michaels specifically and maybe others. Uh, Dick Fadden and Guy Saint-Jacques, I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. All right, coming up, crisis in care. The Canadian forces sound the alarm on a disturbing level of neglect and dangerous conditions at long-term care homes in Ontario and Quebec. Who should be held accountable? Is it time to call a national public inquiry? The Scrum is next, and our special guest will be Charlene Stewart from the SEI Healthcare Union. They represent 60,000 workers, and they had a stunning report last year on this. Stay right here with Question Period. This is a situation that has gone on for a long time. Uh, we need to take action as a country. As we all know, the COVID-19 pandemic has ravaged Canada's long-term care homes. They account for more than 80% of the national death toll. It's devastating. And nowhere has this been felt more than in Ontario and Quebec, where the situation is so bad that the military reinforcements had been called in and they may have to stay there until September. Two unbelievably disturbing whistleblowing reports released by those provinces, well, by the military to those provinces this week, showed that the troops witnessed an alarming lack of care, neglect, poorly equipped staff, dangerous conditions for both residents and staff. And let's just say it again, these are all glaring issues that have been known for years by successive governments and they essentially did little or nothing. Quebec's premier has now asked the troops to stay on the ground until at least September. He's launching a recruitment drive, hoping to get as many as 10,000 Quebecers working in homes as soon as possible. And in Ontario, Premier Ford says he's looking into criminal charges against people in five of those homes. Are the damaging documents enough to finally call a national public inquiry who's accountable? What should be done? Maybe does the federal government step in and use the authority of the Canada Health Act. The Scrum is here to debate that. Bob Fife is the Globe and Mail's Ottawa Bureau Chief. He joins us, so does Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief. And our special guest today is Charlene Stewart. She's the president of the SEIU Healthcare. That's a union that represents more than 60,000 frontline healthcare workers. And they put out a report on long-term healthcare in the homes last year. Charlene, and all of you, great to see you. Charlene Stewart, I'm gonna start with you. When you heard Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario say, until he saw the whistleblowing reports from the military, he said, I didn't know how bad it was. Should he have known? Did you believe what he said? Uh, well, first of all, happy to be here with you. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, somebody asked me what was my biggest surprise uh, in that report when it was released. I said the biggest surprise was how the Premier and the ministers reacted to that report. There's absolutely no way that he did not know uh, what the outcome of that report was going to be. I think maybe the surprise was that it did come out public earlier than what maybe people expected it to. So no, I mean, uh, we've been calling on the alarm bells uh, for uh, decades on this. And just recently, over the couple of mo past months with the pandemic, constantly we've been asking and announcing and reporting what we were hearing in real time off the front lines that our members were reporting to us. So for any decision maker or politician to say that they were surprised uh, is factually not true. Bob Fife, a lack of inspections uh, in many of these homes. You saw these whistleblowing reports in the military. What, ha what do you think the reaction should be? What do the, the federal government do? What do the provinces have to do now? Well, I mean, one of the biggest problems here is the fact that governments have tried to cut back on health care from at least 1995. And everybody knows 
that the healthcare system is under enormous pressure and they move people into long-term care facilities. And, and as Sherilyn is right, they all knew about this. There are minimal standards. Uh, inspectors would give them two weeks notice that they were going to come. Governments, it doesn't matter what your political stripe, did not want to spend any more money on health care. That has got to change. It is going to change. Canadians will no longer allow seniors to live in these kind of conditions, or I will say our health care system deteriorate. Money has got to go in, and the provinces don't have a lot of that money. So Ottawa is going to have to step up at the plate and provide significantly more funding for our provinces to provide proper health care, in our hospitals, but also for long-term care facilities. Joyce, what are you and, what are you seeing in this? Well, you know, uh, interesting. I, I agree with Bob. So the federal government, which is the one that you know hands over the money to the provinces for health care, has been cutting health care um, you know, regularly in 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 the last years. Um, what also happened to these uh, to these facilities is that in disallowing families to come in in telling the families, that's it, you guys are completely excluded from this game. Um, it was tantamount to firing half their staff because families do come in and do help out. And when they were told they couldn't come in anymore, all of a sudden, all this work fell on those healthcare workers that were not prepared for this, did not have the proper uh, protective equipment, and not the proper training. And if you read those reports, those, that scathing report in Ontario by the, uh, by the military, they were not even washing their hands. There is some equipment that hadn't been checked since 2014. Right. So Charlene is quite right. The governments were perfectly aware of what was going on, but saying to themselves, probably in a very right. cynical way, too bad, this is the last stop for a lot of people, why should we care? Well, here you go, this is why you should care. Charlene, so what, what, what are the solutions from a federal government point of view? It's clearly provincial jurisdiction, although healthcare is a shared jurisdiction. Do we need a national public inquiry? Do they need to pull this under the Canada Health Act? Do they need national standards? Uh, do they need to outlaw private uh, delivered long-term care? What's your view on that? I could, I could almost say yes to everything you just said, but um, the inquiries are critically important. I mean, I stand up here and I give my um, observations and perspective, but an inquiry much like the Armed Forces report uh, would be a legitimate, nonpartisan, uh, hopefully independent, uh, 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 chaired by a judge who has the ability to subpoena witnesses, uh, open up books that I think would answer a lot of those questions that you just uh, asked. But I do really feel that there is more of a role for the federal government here. Um, you know, we know the relationships between provinces and, and federal government, uh, but there has to be accountability to any money transferred from anybody's hands, whether it be federal money to the provinces and provinces to those homes. Bob, you wanted to weigh in on that. Yeah, yeah look, uh, there, look, there's there's no, we need, we need an inquiry, but we, need action now. The inquiry can look on what went wrong and look at long-term solutions. But governments have to step in and say we cannot allow for-profit long-term care facilities because the bottom line is these guys want to line their pockets and they're going to cut costs as we have seen. They pay people very little money um, and if we had staff that was properly trained and, and paid properly in a publicly funded system, we would not have these problems. We'd have some problems, but we wouldn't have the kind of problems we're having now. Well, so they, I think they've got to act now. 
Well, to be fair, you know, uh, public-private, I don't think, I don't think that, that should be a debate for today. could be a debate for later because the provinces, uh, the, the Ontario uh, uh, government cut uh, funds to, uh, to, these, uh, to these institutions. So it's not, only, um, it's not only the private versus the public. And also, you know, um, I agree with Bob, you know, an inquiry is going to take ages. We know how long these things take and the solutions have to be today. They didn't even have in some of these Quebec facilities air conditioners for the heat wave. Uh, they were going to put everybody in the same room so that they could cool off. I mean, it's crazy. It's, th this makes absolutely no sense in a country like Canada. All right. Uh, there's a lot. This is going to be maybe an election issue. Long-term care homes have become one of the critical emerging issues of the crisis. Charlene Stewart, I really always appreciate hearing from you. And again, I remind people, it was just a year ago that her union put out a report that revealed all this stuff. And we're still talking about today. The rest of the scrum is going to stick around. Coming up, B.C. Supreme Court decision allowing the extradition case of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou to continue could have drastic political consequences for Canada. What is the path forward for the Trudeau government? Do they have to have a tougher stance on China? What does that mean? Special guest, former interim conservative leader Ron Ambrose will talk about that and the state of democracy right here in Canada. Stay with us on Question Period. So Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou has been dealt a serious blow this week when the B.C. Supreme Court ruled that her extradition case could continue. She lost. China was livid, threatening to retaliate, calling the Canadian government accomplices to the United States. But what does the crucial ruling mean for Canada's diplomatic relationship with China and the fate of the two Canadians, the two Michaels, who are in prison there for over 500 days? How should Canada respond? And... Will Canada join the UK and other countries to find an alternative to using the Chinese telecom company Huawei in the 5G network? To talk about that and the state of our own democracy, the Scrum is back. Joining us again, of course, is Bob Fife. Joyce Napier is back. And our special guest this round is the former interim conservative leader, Ron Ambrose. Great to have you back. And, Ron, great to have you join our program. The decision wasn't good news, obviously, for Meng Wanzhou. Uh, first of all, we've heard it's not a matter of if but when China retaliates, what can Canada do now? What, what do you expect Canada's response ought to be? Well, I think, look, we are a country of the rule of law. So while we saw that ruling unfold from an independent judge, I think we can all take comfort in the fact that we have a country that believes in the rule of law and follows the rule of law. But China doesn't quite see it that way. Uh, they are uh, beyond angry, to say the least. I mean, they went as far as through their Chinese state media to call us clowns. I think we have to be very concerned about the safety of the two Michaels that are being held in China. We also have to worry about economic retaliation. We know already that they are willing to take uh, to impose tariffs on canola, our soybeans, our pork, our beef. Uh, and this would, I mean, in the middle of COVID, this would land a huge blow to our economy. So we have to be very, very concerned. Bob, what are the options though, Canada? Everyone says, take a tougher stance. You know, that you see what's going on in Hong Kong. Canada wrote a letter with other countries. What options are on the table for Canada? Well, look, I, the government has been so timid towards China right from the time the prime minister uh, was elected in 2015. Uh, you remember a few years before that, he said he had, the country he admired the most was China because they could get things done. Duh, it's a dictatorship. 
But since then, China has become an international bully. It uses its economic might, its military might, and its diplomatic might to push other countries around. And the only way out of this is that we have to work with other countries in a Western international coalition. Australia, the United States, the UK, Germany, and the European Union. Because all of these countries are deeply concerned about the new aggressiveness from China. But the only way we're going to do this is to do it together. Uh, Joyce, it's now probably impossible to de-link the Meng Wanzhou case to the, the decision that Canada's got to make on, on Huawei. Do they make it part of a 5G system? And the UK is pitching this 10-country coalition. Let's find alternatives for democracies to not use it. Does this jam the Trudeau government when it comes to the 5G in Huawei? Well, you know, they've been sitting on a decision now for months. Um, and every so Two often... Uh, okay. That, that 24 months. Um, and we've been asking the prime minister, so when is your decision? When is your decision? Look, they try to put the, to, to sort of push China out of the way when they signed the Trans-Pacific Partnership that was everybody but China. You know, other countries, Canada, is Canada being timid about China? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are two men, Michael Spavor and Michael uh, Kovrig, that are in prison now for 539 days uh, over there for no apparent reason then out of retaliation from Meng Wanzhou. Um, has the government of Canada been vocal about it? Not really. They tell us that they talk to them behind the scenes. They do not talk to, to, to China behind the scenes, nor do any other countries for that matter, because that big bully is also very powerful. And if everybody wants to start, you know, punishing China, well, everything will cost more. Um, everybody has a, uh, has a horse in the race. Everybody has a stake in the game. And there are very few countries uh, that dare uh, to speak up against China and that dare to even speak about sanctions against China. But, you know, Evan, when, when you think about our 5G networks, this, I mean, you're right, Joyce, and that we don't have a lot of leverage in some ways. And when you think of trade, it's not easy to just pivot from one country to another and find new trading partners overnight. But when we're thinking about making a decision about what company we go with for our 5G networks, mm -hmm. there all are alternatives to Huawei. Absolutely. There's Ericsson, there's Nokia, and there's even thinking about building more 5G capacity within Canada. So I really like Boris Johnson's idea of creating some kind of a coalition to find an alternative to Huawei. All right, guys, let me just quickly turn to this notion of the hybrid parliament. I'll start with you, Bob. The House mm -hmm. will not be sitting for regular parliamentary sittings until late September. We have the, what's called the COVID committee, just so people understand the difference. There are no opposition day motions, no private members bills. There's, you can discuss other topics now, but Bob, is this problematic? And, and what do you make of the deal that essentially the NDP supports the Liberals on this? Well, I'm deeply disappointed in the NDP for going along with the Liberals on this. We have the most serious economic and, and health crisis facing this country. This is not a, sum, a regular summer where MPs head off to their constituency now. Parliament needs to be sitting. It needs to be holding governments to account for billions and billions, $150 billion of spending. The estimates are going to come down next week, and they're only going to have four hours of perusal by parliamentarians. That's completely unacceptable. And we've seen Parliament has done an excellent job holding them to account when they tried to do unlimited spending for two years without parliamentary authority when they expand parliamentarians force the government to expand the emergency uh, uh, benefit to people and also in expanding the wage subsidy. There's been lots of examples where 
Our parliament acted in pushing the government and holding them to account. They're getting a free pass this summer, and I think it's unacceptable. Joyce, what's your view? Oh my on God, this? I'm I'm totally outraged. I'm actually happy Bob <laughs> is outraged too because I thought I was the only person who was outraged because when I bring it up, people go, "Oh, I don't know, who cares?" You you have to care. Uh, you have to care. This is, you know, tantamount to proroguing uh, Parliament, and I know that Rana can speak to that. Um, I mean, I think that, um, you know, the, the democratic process is being, you know, sort of brushed under the rug. The, the liberals are spending like crazy. They're not even going, they don't even want to give us a fiscal update. They don't even want to tell us how we're going to pay for this. Uh, we have no idea uh, what, where the debt and the deficit is going except for the PBO. Right. So, I mean, you know, you want uh, transparency, you're not going to get it here, and you're not going to get it if Parliament is not sitting. And I think that uh, we should all be worried about that. Uh, Rana, what's your, I remember, look, when, when Stephen Harper prorogued, uh, both the Liberals and the, NP and the NDP and many people were absolutely livid about that short-circuiting democracy. Joyce said there's a parallel here. What, do you see that? <laughs> look, I think we are in the middle of one of the worst public health crisis, economic crisis, and Parliament is going to take the summer off. It's absolutely unacceptable. Canadians should be outraged by this. Parliamentarians, no matter what party they're in, are elected to lead, to debate, and to be held accountable. And they're held accountable by Canadians. And the opposition has a role, obviously, to hold the government accountable. The government is not run by bureaucrats. It's run by elected people, elected by the people of Canada. And we expect our parliamentarians to be in Parliament. And to Bob's point, I am shocked that the NDP has let this happen specifically because these issues very much are their issues. It's about making sure that people, we have homelessness issues, we have family violence issues, we have poverty issues emerging, we have massive problems in the public health system. So with long-term care, with the long-term care system, I, I'm, I'm very, very upset that we would allow this to happen. Guys, unfortunately, I got to wrap it up there. Uh, Bob Fife, Joyce Napier and Ron Ambrose. Great to have all of you on a Sunday morning. I appreciate it. Lots to discuss. And thank all of you for watching our program and sharing your Sunday with us. Before we go, I got to say happy birthday to my mom. Mom, I love you. Happy birthday. Hope you have a great day. And a quick thank you to this entire team, this small but mighty team at CTV Question Period. They were a part of our Canadian Screen Award win this past week. A total team effort. We're, I'm so grateful to work with this incredible, remarkable team. Thank you for watching and thanks for your support. We'll see you in seven days and I'll see you tomorrow night on Power Play at 5 p.m. on CTV News Channel. Take care.